Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Sam Fleming, our financial policy correspondent, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and down the line from Paris, our correspondent there, Michael Stottard. Today we'll be looking at the latest news in the bonus cap debate as the EU seems to win the fight with the UK over the bonus cap. Secondly, to Paris, where we'll be talking to Michael about the latest developments at BNP. And finally, a torrid week for RBS, Emma Dunkley reporting. Sam, the bonus cap. It's a saga that's been going on for many months, probably years now, ever since the UK lodged an official objection to the incoming EU rules that cap bonuses at one time salary or two times with express jailed approval there's been this fight which now seems to be at an end. Yes, George Osborne last week threw in the towel. The move on the legal battle that you mentioned followed an opinion by Nilo Jaskinen, who's the Advocate General of the European Court of Justice, which was the court in which George Osborne lodged his challenge to the bonus cap. The opinion suggested that the bonus cap was legally sound, and rather than wait for final judgment from the court, this is not a binding uh, ruling from uh, the Advocate General, George Osborne decided it wasn't worth the candle. He didn't want to waste any more money on this legal battle. And so he admitted that he wasn't going to win in his attempt to raise legal questions about the bonus cap. Instead, George Osborne wrote to Mark Carney in his capacity as the Financial Stability Board chairman, suggesting there ought to be a global look at ways of tackling fixed pay. Now that ties in with something we talked about last week here, which was Mr. Carney's was a speech, I think, just about a week ago, in which he made clear that he does indeed want to do things to tackle fixed pay by introducing things like recoverable bond-based pay. Remind us there, Sam, what exactly might happen as a result of this. Mark Carney gave a speech in Singapore, and he raised the issue of how do you tackle uh, fixed pay? How do you uh, disincentivize risk-taking through fixed pay structures, given variable pay, i.e. bonuses, are falling as a proportion of fixed pay because people's salaries are going up in the banking sector? The figures in Europe are quite interesting. Uh, Variable pay in European banks has fallen from about two-thirds of total compensation back in 2010 to around half of total compensation in 2012. And that is indeed before the impact of the bonus cap, which is coming into effect this year. So Mark Carney raised this idea of ways of effectively clawing back salaries through these things called performance bonds. This is an idea that was originally floated by Bill Dudley of the New York Federal Reserve. The idea would be that you would pay bankers in these performance bonds, and then if there was a major fine or a major failure at the bank, those bonds could be effectively clawed back. This might be one way of addressing the problem of rising fixed pay in the banking sector. An open question, of course, as to whether the EU will decide whether or not that fits in with their own bonus cap. 
We should move on to the second topic of the day, which is BNP. A difficult week for BNP last week. They had a big restructuring in their investment bank. But more to the point, it became clear that they were the subject of an investigation or at least a preliminary inquiry by the financial prosecutor there over alleged insider trading. I'm joined on the line from Paris by Michael Stottard, our correspondent there. Michael, thanks very much for joining us. Last week was a pretty nasty one for BNP, partly the kind of tumult created by this rejig in the investment bank, but far more unsettling, obviously, was this insider trading allegation. Tell us exactly what's at the root of it and how likely it is to lead to anything uh, more serious. Well, the French financial prosecutor came out that earlier this month they had started an investigation into insider trading, focusing on three of the key figures of the bank, Bédon Pro and Michel Pabreau and Philippe Bodner, who are three sort of huge figures, about shares they sold in 2013 in the run-up to the internal investigation into sanctions violations, which turned out to lead to the biggest fine in history of $9 billion. So it's essentially the extent to which they knew about what was really going on, what the fine was likely to happen when they sold their shares. So, Michael, the key thing seems to be in advance of the June, I think it was in June that the $8.9 billion fine was levelled. These share sales happened a long time before that. The suspicion is that at even then they knew that it was going to be a massive fine, that they sold the shares in advance of that, even at a time when they were only taking, say, a, about a billion euros, I think, in provisions officially ahead of these fines. Well, exactly. I mean, it's hard to know what the prosecutor knows that we don't, but it seems that when they sold the shares in 2013, it was a long time even before they took 1.1 billion legal provision in February, which didn't really move the share price very much. The real drama with the share price happened in the months after that, where people say that they didn't sell any shares at all. So it's hard to think that they really had all that much inside information back in the middle of 2013 for something that would only really become apparent to anyone in the middle of 2014. But having said that, maybe the prosecutors know things that we don't. Well, time will tell, I suppose, on that. Just a final word on the broader significance of this, because obviously it's an interesting story in itself, but more than the details, really, it's it's pretty significant, isn't it, that the establishment in the form here of the financial prosecutor has turned on such senior figures in French banking at BNP. So, as you said, Monsieur Pebereau, the former long-standing chairman, previously chief executive, now lifetime president, Mr. Pro, who's the outgoing chairman, and Philippe Bodenov, the chief operating officer. These are very significant figures in the French establishment. And I would say almost unthinkable even a few months ago that they would have been rounded on in this way without, so far at least, there seeming to be any um, smoking gun. Yeah, I think there are several factors at play here. I mean, firstly, there is the fine itself, which obviously weakened the reputation of BNP Paribas. But there's a sort of broader pressure on these financial regulators to sort of crack down on this kind of crime. And I think perhaps that would have overridden the grand status of BNP even before the fine. I mean, I'm in two minds, and it's counterfactual in a way. And the third factor is that this new financial prosecutor is, as I said, a new financial prosecutor. The head of it only started at the beginning of this year, and you know she's promised to be a financial strike force. So there's an extent to which it's a new body trying to be particularly aggressive and prove its name. Yes, and emulate the UK and US authorities, arguably. 
Thank you, Michael, for those thoughts. On to our third topic for the day. RBS had a pretty torrid week last week, Emma. Yes, it was a very tough week for RBS. They received a fine from the regulator for an IT systems failure that they had two years ago. And then the following day, they revealed that they actually miscalculated their capital strength levels in the recent European-wide tests. And then on Sunday, the Treasury Select Committee revealed letters from RBS's chairman, Philip Hampton, apologising for incorrect evidence that its bankers gave with regards to its restructuring unit. So it's been quite a tough week for the bank. Absolutely. Which of those do you think is the most damaging? They're all quite damaging in their own respects. The IT failure, it's damaging insofar as it was the biggest retail fine awarded by the FCA of about £42 so that's pretty significant in itself. However, the bank was keen to impress that it's made significant changes to the way its systems now operate. So in that regards, hopefully customers and shareholders can read some sigh of relief in knowing that they've addressed the issues. But it's particularly disconcerting that the capital strength measures that they gave were incorrect because this then casts doubt over the other numbers that they've provided. And of course, we have the UK's tests coming up in a couple of weeks with the results of the Prudential Regulation Authority's own stress tests are revealed. So, I mean, just to provide context, essentially, RBS got their core tier one capital ratio wrong by a whole percentage point in the uh, European Banking Authority's test. So they reported it was 6.7 instead of 5.7, is that right? Exactly. And the pass rate's only 5.5%. And this is in an adverse scenario, i.e. the worst economic situation. And so in that regard, it actually came out as the worst performing British bank, which was previously held by Lloyds at 6.2%. So as you said, there's a UK test coming up very soon. Does this in any way kind of reflect badly for that test in concrete terms in the sense that, okay, if they only scrape through the European test people expect the UK one to be maybe tougher. Is there a chance that RBS could fail the UK test? It doesn't reflect insofar as there are different measurements used by the test. So the EBA is is retrospective insofar as it measured capital strength up until the end of last year, whereas the UK's one is a bit more of a rolling balance sheet. So in that sense, it's slightly different measurement. And to help reassure investors and customers, RBS has first off conducted its own investigation into what went wrong exactly with the EBA figures. And on top of this, the UK's regulator has essentially ordered RBS to bring in its auditors to go over the figures to provide some assurance for when the UK's figures come out in December. Well, we shall watch those figures very closely and we'll double-check the maths as well. Thank you very much to Emma and also to Sam and Michael Stottard from Paris for participating. Also, thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.